Hi everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when and what do I do when, so that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Dr. Laura Anderson, and I'm glad you're here. And I'm really glad to be here today with Marsha Eckerd. Um, we are going to be talking about, and I'm going to be learning about one of my my favorite things to talk about because I think it is an area of tremendous need for learning and growth. And there are lots of parents and clinicians and teachers who need this information. So welcome, Marsha. Thank you so much. Yeah. Marsha has done a lot of writing about autism spectrum conditions. And I always let guests tell us what part of their bio feels most salient. So what brings you to being in the chair with me to chat today? How did you get to this place to talk about this stuff? Well, originally, and what seems like eons ago, since I've been doing this for over 30 years, I did a lot. In addition to therapy, I did a lot of neuropsych testing, and I was running across particular kids who just had a pattern that fit together, and they they struggled with social skills. They had a neuropsych profile that that was somewhat unique and so i i started working with them and through getting to know them i moved into working with um with kids at first who were on the autism spectrum the 
that really interested me and as i was working on this i started getting young teenagers and young adults and older people ended up with a practice ranging from 10 year olds to 60 year olds and i learned more and more from um the perspective of people who are autistic as opposed to the diagnostic criteria that are I think very pathologizing. Mm -hmm. So I be I began writing about this first for Psych Central and then for uh, Psychology Today, and got a lot of response from people saying, "This is my experience. This is my child's experience," um, which is it was very exciting for me. And I got invited into some autistic only spaces uh, that I I suddenly really understood that people who were on the spectrum were nothing like what most clinicians expected. <laughs> they were funny, they were empathic, they were articulate, they were supportive of each other. And so I began in an even more informed way writing, uh, trying to communicate the, um, the, the, the neurodivergent experience to neurotypical people and to help people make sense of it in a way that certainly wasn't the mainstream idea in mental health. Yeah. Oh, then that's wonderful too, because there's so much, yeah, misinformation. And, and today in particular, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, <clears throat> autism in folks identified, you know, as female or assigned female at birth rather. Um, and so girls, autism in girls and, <sighs> What are the what are some of the patterns you see in what's being missed? Talk about what 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 confuses parents or clinicians about what an autism spectrum condition may look like in a girl and how that differs from what it may look like okay. in a boy. Understanding there's a wide range. This is one part of the thing that makes it interesting. Yes. I I would say just yeah. as my experience that my trans women have told have let me know that it's important to be inclusive of all girls yes perfect okay no that's important and i was different that we're include that we yes are talking about all girls today so it's people who identify oh, as female assigned we're, female we're at birth and identify as female now that's really important absolutely so, right yes. right <laughs> It's interesting, you know, that it, because it starts somewhere very fundamental, which is like in many other fields, all the research that was done on autism was done on males. So the idea of what autism looked like was based on what it looked like in guys. And nobody really paid much attention to what it looked like in in women and so therefore a woman could have or a girl could have as many autistic traits as a boy or even more autistic traits as a boy and still be missed yeah so these girls uh, grew up to be autistic adults still not looking like anybody's idea of autism the problem with that is that they were grossly and totally misunderstood. That's one big problem. Mm -hmm. The second is they couldn't understand themselves. So girls, we have a lot of societal expectations of girls. Girls are supposed to be people pleasers. 
that would suggest that you understand people in a way that was a struggle for many of these girls so that they knew from a very early age that they were different they felt they didn't fit in they they were um rejected so at a very young age girls learn to mask they learn to be very careful observers not only of other girls but girls would look at social media they'd look at videos they look at just about everything to figure out what looked normal and i had one woman who described herself as she would put on her disney princess mask Oh. <laughs> before she went out you know the smile the bubbly the whole thing which wasn't authentically her at all but her idea of what normal was supposed to look like the the, the tr this but girls didn't understand and neither do women really until they get diagnosed why what came naturally for everybody else didn't work for them so they were i was i have one woman who's pretty well known she's uh in social media as neurodivergent rebel and she talked about how people would take her aside and say you know if you only didn't act weird people would like you oh. which gives you this cringeworthy yeah. message about yourself that that you know if you just stopped being you and you acted more like everyone else that you would be okay and what's also interesting is that girl unlike boys and boys will have activities like say softball and the boy who's not playing softball stands out girls would often hang out on the playground around other groups of girls hmm. but they wouldn't necessarily be included in the group but they were with the group and so an observer looking at them would think she was social. And I would, you know what, and I've over the years in playgrounds, people who, you know, I'll say, well, are they, is she interacting with other kids at recess? Oh, yes, she plays with the girls. And then I would go out and observe at recess and, and she was shadowing girls approaching being with them but not really engaging in any you know eye contact conversation turn taking in games that kind of thing so the yeah helping people recognize that that's interesting whereas more often you might see one boy by himself off collecting bugs or something his specialized area of interest or whatever and doing that so yes thank you for that what what other kinds of things do uh, reasons why girls are missed well I, I you just brought up a really a really important point which is the idea of boys is that their interests are um in a word weird they might be interested in parts of radios or you know fascinated with dinosaurs and bugs or something like that whereas girls interests tend to be more gender normal so a girl who's really interested in art or horses or animals or reading is doesn't stand out as an unusual girl this girl may have read every single book in the elementary school library but she doesn't stand out if she's got a book because other girls also are interested in reading so they don't stand out that way many of the other things that are autistic traits weren't understood therefore as being autistic so if an autistic girl for example needs routine or predictability which is one of the characteristics of many on the spectrum 
She was seen as oppositional, attention-seeking, stubborn, self-focused, manipulative, all kinds of words that, again, were pejorative judgments of herself, of her. Right. And, and, and she would see herself as disliked, seen as argumentative, seen as, as things that were negative, because it wasn't understood that the issue was that she needed routine. She needed predictability. And having things sort of sprung on her or transitions were hard. So, again, she was getting all this negative feedback. There are a whole variety of autistic traits that when a girl did it, she got labeled. So another one, for example, is sensory sensitivity. It's very common for people on the spectrum to have sensory sensitivities. But if she was sensitive to the feeling of her clothes, for example, or she was very sensitive to noise, or she was very sensitive to texture, she was called a drama queen. Yeah. And people didn't understand that she actually experienced these things differently. So all along, these girls are getting all this negative feedback about who they are. And they, they, they're forced to either try to cover it over or to be, to, to, to be authentic, but to be misunderstood. Yeah. And, and I think I can see the piece, too, that you were discussing about especially as kids get older as well. Um, and the social nuance is such an important thing that we expect girls to be pleasers, because, which means if you're a pleaser, that means you're anticipating, you're imagining what other people need, and you are anticipating when they're going to need it and how to read when they need it. And these are things that are... Um, as I understand it, challenging for for folks um, on the spectrum to imagine what something to plan ahead and imagine what's going on in somebody else's mind and what their emotional reaction may be, and as a child in particular. But but we sort of expect girls to do that, and so it, it that girls who don't do that really are instead of understood as or instead of people being curious about what could explain what's been tricky about learning that instead it's assumed to be selfish or you know all of these things where they're difficult difficult is a is a the a word that i would hear you know they're just difficult which i think speaks to the rigidity and the fact that they they aren't um always anticipating and maybe perhaps something else you and i talked about a little bit um before the beginning Talk to me about truth-telling. Some of my favorite, most memorable quotes in 25 years of practice in things that have been said to me directly have been from autistic kids and girls in particular. So talk a little bit about this truth-telling phenomenon and autism and girls. It's a trait that isn't... There's a lot about autism that isn't in the diagnostic manual. And one characteristic is that people who are on the spectrum tend to tell the truth. And that seems okay. But really socially telling the truth is not something uh, that, that people, people want. And it's thought that, you know, that's tactless, it's inconsiderate, it's rude, it's all kinds of things. Um, two stories come to mind. One, in, in, 
my practice, I had a girl who was a young woman who was 14 who came in and she was questioning her gender identity. And she she wanted to, me to tell her what it was. Well, of course, you can't simply tell somebody something like that. So I did the usual shrinky thing of talking to her about you have to have life experience and you have to go through, you know, experiencing yourself as your body is changing which is what happens to was happening to her and at the end of this she looked at me and she said well that certainly wasn't helpful <laughs> yes <laughs> you're like okay i mean i think it is when, when, when i've tried to support kids it's really interesting to listen to myself listen to yourself try to have a conversation about truth with kids and like when you tell it and when you don't and how you're supposed to know when you can actually say what you're observing and when you shouldn't say what you're observing and you have to be truthful about your own behavior but not how somebody else look i mean some of the classic quotes that i've got you know like wow you you know you look terrible today like comments on physical appearance comments on just just what was on their mind and 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 yeah, reflections on the quality of my work definitely <laughs> have come. From. Yeah, I, I had one um, young woman who absolutely refused to say that it was nice to see someone if it wasn't, <laughs> which was kind of a problem in family reunions. <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to say oh it's nice to see you to all these varying aunts and uncles and as she simply wouldn't do it if it wasn't, it wasn't. <laughs> but and right and this is i mean on yes i there are anecdotes after anecdotes that i have too of and and to and then to think and then i'm you know i'm working in school so then kids are sent to my office and i'm sitting there how do i explain why we don't say in this situation this thing but in this other situation i mean like really there's incredible nuance and flexibility that goes into what our expectations are if we aren't versed in in how black and white it it isn't for folks and and i think it's really um you know that just even understanding that that isn't rude um, it's not, you know, intended to be bossy. It's not, again, unlikable. That's another. So difficult. And I've had teachers or, or folks or other people just say, I, there's just something unlikable in my heart. And they, they're not saying that proudly. They're just saying, I'm having a hard time connecting to this kid. And I've, yeah. Yeah. I, see, I totally agree with you. And I think that as adults and and as teachers as people as professionals people aren't aware of the degree to which they expect to be gratified so that i had one teacher who was in a special school he was a focused teacher working one-on-one -on -one with a girl and he was i was coaching him and doing something that interested her so she was engaged with him and he wanted to change and i said no 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 you're you're doing something right stick with it and so he did and he found it works working well and he said but i'm still waiting for the day when she comes in and gives me a big smile and says oh it's so nice to see you today and I thought, boy, do you have a long way coming. Yes. <laughs> well, and I think, and to the point, we individuals expect gratification. They expect that feedback for parents. 
I mean, I watched so many parents over the years be in, in, in anguish or nervous, like, okay, so you go to the family reunion and your kid is the kid who says, you know, as kids said in my office, you've gotten fat, Aunt Mary. You know what I mean? Like, the, I definitely have had kids said, oh, my gosh, you've put on so much weight. Or like, you're way bigger than when I met you. <laughs> I've had kids say. Or, 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 or just how about that stupid? Yeah. I mean, teachers are not big on uh, being told that either that's stupid or something's wrong. wrong. You know, actually, Miss so-and-so, you, you got that wrong. <laughs> doesn't go over well Well, right and so then you have parents who in that moment when i work with other parents right it's like the parents are embarrassed they feel as if they've failed because they think everybody in the family reunion or the teacher is going to think you're modeling poor social skills or you're not teaching your kid you know social niceties that we expect especially of girls um, the, then, so what happens in my experience is that parents clench, they, they, they freeze, they clench, they're nervous, and then they get, they get negative, they get overcorrective, um, they are communicating and teachers too, intentionally or unintentionally to, to children that, that they're weird, that they're being bad, that they're disappointing, that they, that something about them is is wrong and and you mentioned earlier too that you've spent time with adult women who reflecting back on what they wish people had known what did they what do they wish people had known when they were younger kids struggling with um literal inter right so the basic literal interpretation truth telling sensory sensitivities that looked difficult um, not understanding social cueing and subtleties, not having obvious, like they're not doing as many maybe of the, of the um, self-stimulating behavior. Talk a little bit about that and then I'll circle back to the adult women question. What do you see in terms of repetitive actions that kind of became a hallmark for what folks think they're looking for when they're looking for autism? Talk about that. Well, I, I... People have an idea of what they call stimming, which is a which is a repetitive behavior. That's they picture the little kid flapping his his hands. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's their image. And girls who are masking don't tend to do that. They, I when I talk to women, I notice that sometimes they rock a little bit and women you know and i think even as girls women have described to me in a classroom you know rocking but other things that they do might either either girls don't necessarily have those behaviors or they can be very subtle it might be kind of playing with a little bit of your hair mm -hmm. or it, it might be you know just touching your arm in a particular way it's nothing that someone would necessarily pick up and say oh that looks autistic mm -hmm. so that when they do have repetitive behaviors they don't necessarily look quote autistic in people's expectations of what autistic people look like the uh, and again i think that it's if you look at a poster that's in a kindergarten classroom or a preschool classroom it usually says quiet hands quiet body you know make eye contact and you know you know don't move and that doesn't work 
for so many of these kids. They, they don't have quiet hands and they don't necessarily have quiet bodies and making eye contact may be very difficult for them. And many of them describe either needing to move or um, that they listen better if they're not looking. I've heard that a lot. And I think that's an important point that comes up for me a lot in, when I'm working in supporting schools. How do we help the student make better eye contact? I'm like, well, do you want them to listen or look at you? Because, they, you know, there's something about the sensory channels that folks have communicated over time that that eye contact just... but. It's not, in fact, some of the language I use is I've been told it's sort of like a strobe light. If you force eye contact, it feels like there's a strobe light in the face of kids and it's aversive and they are not focusing on what else is happening because it's such a strong sensory experience for them. And that it's not everybody, but you can tell from a kid's reaction. And yet we really do, again, rely on eye contact for gratification, for affirmation of listening, for showing respect, and especially in different cultural norms around whether you look at somebody or you don't as an adult when they're talking to you. So a lot of these behaviors can be misinterpreted as disrespectful or willfully challenging when they're really about somebody who is experiencing the world with with I, I sort of talk about it and correct me if I'm wrong sort of like une, uneven volumes on their sensory input right like when they're what you're seeing is folks doing a lot of things that are protective they're trying to regulate through movement through avoiding eye contact through um uh just just doing what it takes to buffer or mitigate the input, the strong sensory input that you're getting. Does that sound right in terms of what you've experienced? Completely. And I think it's a problem in terms of the way schools look at uh, behavior. If a girl's, even if a girl is diagnosed, the idea is that you're doing her a favor if you if you kind of extinguish behavior or you get her to look more normal and if she's and so i had a, a girl who was diagnosed at that time they called it asperger but uh, she had a lot of sensory issues but her behavior was that in spanish class she would draw on her ipad mm. now she was called avoidant and because she wasn't doing Spanish and she was called attention seeking because it got the attention of the teacher and the observer. That doesn't mean the girl was avoidant or attention seeking. In fact, what was going on is that the teacher had very poor control of this class. It had a lot of rowdy boys. They made a lot of noise. So it was a very noisy classroom. She was very noise sensitive. And to deal with the noise, she would draw on her iPad. But there was a plan that she would get one prompt to put away her iPad. And if she didn't put away her iPad, the second time it got taken away. So the teacher took away her iPad. This girl was stuck in a sensory environment that was overwhelming her. So she put her head down on her desk, both out of sadness and also as a way of cutting down on sensory input and the teacher said well if you're so tired you could go to the nurse and this she experienced as being humiliating 
that she so that there was just a fundamental misunderstanding of what was going on here and the intervention that was planned and the comments that were made actually did the opposite of helping her right they were trying to they were trying to make her do and conform to what was expected instead of understanding what wasn't working for her and how and coming up with ways that might be more useful for her to either be in that classroom or be in a quieter classroom well and this is uh, it's funny over the years i've often said that what a child who's known to to have a spectrum kind of profile the rooms in which they're having difficulty tell me a lot about the tone in the classroom and when there's a lot when there's a high tone when there's unpredictability then you see more of the regulating you see more of the whatever it takes to help them stay focused do what is like try to make environments predictable try to minimize their um uh sensory input it, they just look more anxious and the more anxious they are in my experience like the more rigid or repetitive or or like what looks like stubborn but is actually like i'm i'm hanging on to some sense of predictability here and i need i i'm not going to change because there's too much going on um kind of a thing and so I mean, teachers, we're all, we're, you know, teachers are doing the best they can. Parents are doing the best they can. And more education, hopefully, will encourage people to ask themselves more questions when they're finding a kid, you know, stubborn, difficult, unlikable, or always, um, uh, there's like girls in particular there's just always drama if you hear yourself saying drama queen or there's girl drama always surrounding this kid I, I just would be you know invite people to stay curious about that it's not that any one of these things alone points immediately toward a full-blown <laughs> diagnosis and a need for intervention but if you if you see the pattern over time of some of the things that we've discussed, what's what's helpful, if anything? I mean, I sit in complexity about the idea of, of pathologizing, right? Like what's helpful, if anything, about having a label? What is not helpful about having a label and what is helpful about having the label of autism for girls in particular who may be missed otherwise? Well, I'll, I'll start with what's not helpful. What's not helpful is what in the autistic community they call ableism. And ableism is basically diminishing a person, your your estimation of a person because they're you you see because they're labeled autistic. So she can't be as smart as we think she is because she's autistic or we have lower expectations of her because she's autistic. And I have even talked to adult women who were very respected in their field, who found their colleagues treated them differently and were, you know, even infantilizing to them when they had the label of autism. So I think we have to understand that um, there's a lot of stigma stigmatization that goes on when somebody has a, a label and autism, you know, people have all of these images that go with autism that aren't necessarily, that certainly aren't accurate, but that get laid on somebody who is on the spectrum. The positive part of it 
ideally in an ideal environment is that there might be some understanding to look at what a girl's experience is to not blame her for it to not give her a sense of of being inadequate but rather to understand her so if she's having trouble wearing the clothes you know the the tight clothes that are 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 fashionable that somebody help her find something that is comfortable that's going to work for her and that that might be okay so that it's the acceptance and and the lack of judgment ideally that one might experience if somebody got was understanding the one thing that i that breaks my heart when i deal with autistic women and these are experiences that start in their childhood is the sense of shame they carry the sense of shame of internalizing all these times of being told they're weird being told they're quirky being rejected of having teachers mad at them parents mad at them of feeling that they don't live up to standards and and this creates a sense of self okay this creates a sense of who i am that they carry with them and the thing about autism is it's invisible a person doesn't especially someone who doesn't quote i'm doing little quote things with my fingers here look autistic they um you can't see inside the person to know that inside she's struggling socially and she's doing her best or inside she's struggling with the fact that you just changed the seating plan of a classroom and she has to suddenly navigate a new environment she's struggling with the fact that everyone's supposed to be in an assembly and no one it, it would never occur to people in an assembly not to have everybody applaud as loud as they possibly can so it's you know, so she has this sense of who she is as bad to to right. sim- make it weird or that it's a character. Yeah, that it's a character, disappointing, weird, and inadequate. Oh. And then it's a more, and then it's some kind of moral flaw. Yeah. Yeah. that she's she's simply not as okay as everyone else. And one of the things that I often communicate to women that I die that I diagnose is that you are okay you you're you are a deeply caring honest smart person who's very good at what you do and you care for the people who are in your life but somehow people don't see that because they get hung up on that layer of expectations that goes in the middle you know, and another thing that's often true of autistic of, of the people on the spectrum is they they might not express um, sympathy or empathy in the same way. They might offer a way of fixing it. So you lost your puppy rather than say, oh, I'm so sorry. They might say, I know of a really good dog shelter. Or they might share their experiences. I know what it's like. I lost my puppy. That's seen as self-centered or it's seen as unsympathetic. Well, it's a different way of expressing empathy. But research shows that the people on the spectrum actually experience emotional empathy, distress at the distress of another, even more than than typical people do. So a girl might get so upset at the upset of someone else that she might have to leave. 
or she'll pick up on the upset of her parent or the upset of her teacher or the anxiety or the frustration. Even when it's not being said, she picks up on it. Right. And so, and yeah, yes, and is aware of it and it's experienced in, in an intense way that, again, causes some of these coping strategies that aren't necessarily what we expect of leaving, of going to something that is soothing, um, of those kinds of things. Um, yeah. And, and bringing out that, you know, masking is exhausting. If you're constantly, if we were in this conversation and all I could think about is what do you expect me to say next? And do you, ex- what expression do you expect on my face? And how am I supposed to sit? And all I can think about is that. And I'm trying so hard to think about all that kind of, like, what, what am I supposed to do next? And questioning myself and then criticizing myself for, oh, I said too much. I said the wrong thing. I didn't do this. That is exhausting. And, and people, will describe having gone home from school and needing to just be in their room in the dark for an hour to recover. I think that's a really important point that, and and this comes up a lot. We were speaking, you know, I have a lot of adolescents coming in my office and asking about the concept of masking and talking about masking. And I think it's really like they're, and it's interesting that straining for cues, trying to imitate and, and mirror, but but not always i mean not always doing it just successfully enough to to not stand out in enough ways uh to get identified immediately but also you know the nuance the the way we determine how you greet somebody based on your relationship with them when you really have to start breaking down social skills to teach to kids to you real you truly realize how it's like, well, if this, then that. Well, if you know them, if you don't know them, if you know them a little bit, then you would say it like that. It, it, it's it's actually amazing how much automatic sorting we expect kids to do on the fly. And so I think it's, it, it, so this, the idea, and parents have asked me about masking when their adolescents are coming to them. And I said, I, you know, the way that I really think about it is, is a tremendous amount of energy going into like the rallying energy it takes to try to approximate. And I'm doing air quotes now to normal at school and try to look kind of like what other people are doing is so draining that they're just, just um, exhausted after these demands at home and, uh, you know, doing schoolwork on that or showing work that they already know the answer to is another thing that comes up a lot that isn't in the DSM anywhere, but that I see a ton, like getting them to explain what their process is, is also kind of a, a challenging thing. And it can just seem like they don't want to do it or they're not interested. But in fact, the energy that they have, you know, after school, after they've been expected to maintain social demands and behaviors that work in classrooms can be really, um, yeah, just they're, they're super exhausted. So when I'm looking as we, as we sort of get ready to summarize here, I have, um, this, this great, um, article that you did underdiagnosed autistic girls and women. And just to summarize for listeners, Again, there are benefits to to have, the benefits to identifying this in a child is to really help 
stay connected to kids so that we're not making character judgments or or of ourselves or our kids, right? This isn't anything anybody did wrong. And after I go through this list, I want to end on all of the really, the wonderful positive things that we know uh, about folks who have come to the understanding that this describes uh, them. But one of the reasons why we want people to be linking and looking for these things is that we don't want uh, our girls growing up feeling difficult, feeling um, stubborn, feeling drama. That's not what we want for our kids. Instead, we want them to be understood differently. So I think that just as a quick summary of what you had written, some of the, in a nutshell, if you've got a daughter who's um, struggling with nonverbal cues and doesn't always know what to expect socially, friendships are hard to make and keep. And maybe she's on the fringe a lot has difficulty with changes in routines or being flexible, is sensitive to sensory um, kinds of things or will avoid intense sounds or sights or tastes or touch or smells or tags or anything like that, um, shutting down or withdrawing uh, at times when they're overwhelmed, being really literal with language, um, viewing things from a black and white perspective, and then the truth-telling thing that we talked about. Um, yeah, I'd also like to throw in anxiety yeah. and because I know you know in your office and I know in mine that trying to navigate this and getting all this feedback is anxiety producing and you know and and growing up with this kind of self-image can can lead to depression and research shows that these especially bright girls who are um, trying to mask very hard are more prone to be depressed and there is some correlation not cause but correlation with suicidal thinking so you know adolescents don't have they haven't found their people if they found other neurodivergent kids who get them and who accept them and they don't spend all this time on small talk and all that kind of girl group stuff that goes on then you know then they then they're in better stead or if they are understood if they it's so important for a teacher or for a parent to to find somebody who gets it somebody who accepts them somebody who is not judging them but trying to understand them that that can make such a huge difference and a teacher or a parent should know how important how that that role can be because you know i just can't emphasize that enough. Yeah, right, that we want our kids to feel seen, safe, supported, and gotten, and not pathologized, and understand that they're not trying to be difficult or stubborn or attention-seeking, that there's a pattern. When you look, at first, even though we talk about how they don't stand out, that this is invisible, when you start to see this, you can really see it. You, you can. You can see the pattern. When I sit with parents, I'm like, let me guess. Does she, you know, do substitute teachers yeah. are really hard? Day, right like you can start to link these things if you know what you're looking for and that's that's the that's the you know that's the critical thing you know you and i if we start hearing a few of these things then we know to ask for the others and the parents or how did you how did you know that you know you say you hear about the social and you hear about the you know and you hear this and you say well is she really literal and they go yeah Yeah. and (laughs) and i think that um as you said having that's why i think what you're doing is so critical and what 
and I'm trying to do is that we're trying to educate. We're trying to educate parents. We're trying to educate clinicians. And I, the reason I write is because I want parents to have something they can bring to clinicians or bring to school yeah. to say, look, this is, this is what my daughter is like. And I need you to take this seriously. I need you to kind of understand her a bit better, but kind of getting that education out there so that more people because the cdc says one in 44 kids is autistic and when you consider that you and i are sitting here saying a lot aren't diagnosed that's a lot of kids out there right no and let's end i we i know we need to wrap up but let's end on we were having a conversation about and i'm forgetting the direct quote sort of driving the world like let's talk about for parents who are here and we, you know, like, not only is it important not to pathologize, but to recognize it is differently wired. It is not, you know, a deficit. Right. Tell me a little bit on that. End on, end on that. Yeah. So let's end on the note that the idea that autistic kids are broken, normal kids is wrong. Autistic kids are autistic kids. They process differently, not not in a it's not a broken way of processing. And what I say to to people is it's not that you're a broken PC, you're a Mac. <laughs> Macs have different operating systems. Unfortunately, most of the programs around are written for PCs and our Mac kids have to navigate that. Yeah. But the uh, but the idea that you have a constellation of strengths too, your 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 detailed thinking, your analytic thinking, your ability to see patterns other people miss, your you know, is is all an advantage. Sir Simon Baron Cohen, who got his Sir, because he's of his autism research, now calls it autism spectrum condition and talks about how most inventors who are very detail focused and very creative and very, um, you know, very much into that deep depth of interest that is true of autistic people, that they're driving the progress of humanity. So our kids' special interests, their detail focus, their positive qualities, and the things that they may express differently, like their empathy and their caring, those, those are all things that I think parents and educators and autistic kids or adults themselves need to know about themselves you know you are you are someone really good and special even if you're misunderstood yeah oh i love that and that's a a wonderful place to to end and i look forward to sending everybody you've done you're doing more writing and done some great stuff and we'll get folks tuned in and and just helping share with neighbors, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, because it really just having as a parent and as a kid, having people around that that get your kid is just really a beautiful thing. So thank you for taking time today to help that process for my listeners. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm really glad that you've given me and yourself an opportunity to get this these ideas out there. Awesome. Thanks, Marcia. right well thanks for listening today just a quick note here at the end to say i am so glad you joined and i hope you are too and if you'd like to connect with me more come take a look at my website www.drlaraanderson.com there you can join my newsletter keep in touch and find out what is in the works you can also join me for coffee and conversation 
uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today. <laughs>